As we approach the actual 20th anniversary, the country's attention will be focused on 9-11. But what about Iraq? How the heck did that lead to a war in Iraq? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Power of the making of modern memory can hardly be overstated. Though history is always messy, we humans have a need to organize, to put things in the proper file so that we may understand. Intrinsic in that process, relative to history, is the unseen force that does the filing. Hmm. How stories are told greatly influences our common understanding of how we got here and where we may go from that basis of understanding. As is all too obvious from the current effort to erase the history of America's systemic racism, making critical race theory the enemy to be defeated, our understanding of who we are relies on what is accepted as history. Now we approach the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, and the dramatic events of that day are quite clear. Everyone remembers it. But the effects of America's reaction to that attack lack drama and are complicated, but really are as significant as the attack itself. By masterfully pulling the wool over the nation's eyes, our rights were diminished through the brilliantly named Patriot Act, and our foreign policy was steered into new directions based on lie upon lie. And a lot of people have died because of that. Our guest today, Professor of Politics and History Larry Hartanian, looks under the rock of truly astounding distortions in his new book, George W. Bush Administration Propaganda for an Invasion of Iraq, and it's subtitled Absence of Evidence. His curriculum Friday is extensive, suffice it to say, he does his research and knows whereof he speaks. So as the mainstream media will focus on the day no one will forget, we're going to look at the uncomfortable truth about what people in the Bush administration did to America and Iraq, history the Republicans would prefer we ignore. But we won't. Uh, Larry, thank you so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Bert, it's a real pleasure to be with you. I, I like your introduction. Yeah. What was your intent for digging in, doing the research, and writing the book? Why now? Well, uh... I, I lived through the events, lived through 9-11, lived through the buildup to the Iraq War, and uh, from the start I was an opponent of what I perceived as the Bush administration's push to invade Iraq. Uh, I must also say that pretty much from the start, when it became clear that uh, Bush intended to move into Iraq, uh, that opposition uh, from the American public, opposition internationally, was not going to make much difference to him. This was something which, for the most part, uh, they ignored like they did other unpleasant information and intelligence. So having, having been 
there, uh, having been uh, involved in, in demonstrations at the time against the war, uh, again, kind of seeing where it was going or where I thought it was going, and then it went there. Uh, then the invasion occurred, and uh, it became important for me to try to understand how something like that could come about. Uh, it, uh, as a student of propaganda, I guess I would say I was not surprised, but it seems to me that every one of these situations that we find ourselves in is somewhat unique, uh, looking at how this administration or that administration, uh, as you said, pulls the wool over the American public's eyes, that's a very important thing. Uh, it's important for understanding what happened uh, at the time. It's important for understanding what might happen in the future. Um, your, your other question as to why now, yes. well, truth be told, <laughs> I started on this book back in 2008. Uh, so, so it's had a very, very long genesis. Uh, I think at that time I was a little bit more focused on the relationship between intelligence and propaganda, which is still a part of the book. Uh, but it took me a couple of years of research and, and initial writing to really feel or really uh, come to realize that the uh, the documents that I needed uh, to really get a full sense of the intelligence picture were not available. So uh, life intervened. I had various things that I had to do, so the project got laid aside. Uh, and then uh, about 2018, I picked it up again. Uh, and then when I retired uh, just two years ago now, that really became the focus of my work. So I, I can't exactly say that you know there was something about this particular moment that drove me to do the research and writing, but it's been uh, a concerted effort, a very intentional effort, and uh, something that over the years uh, I was not going to let go of. Well, that's good, because it's important, and you remind me that, as my slightly older sister says about retirement, how did I have time to work? <laughs> <clears throat> the conventional wisdom is everything changed on 9-11-2001. George W. Bush was, of course, president at the time, and he was starting to slip down in polls, and then 9-11 happened. You write that the Bush administration views on Iraq prior to 9-11 were belligerent, and this is prior to 9-11. The president's father, George H.W. Bush, had a bit of a tussle with Iraq's Saddam Hussein, and we've heard it said that all politics is personal. What about the speculation that Bush the Second's Bush the First no Bush the Second's 2003 actions had to do with revenge on Hussein. Where did this belligerence come from that was there before 9/11? What was it about? Something to do with his dad? Sure, lots of lots of uh, questions there uh, to unpack. Uh, you you initially started out saying that 9/11 uh, changed everything. Um, and that is the conventional wisdom. I would like to say that, that that is, in fact, the case. For the Bush administration, there is no question that 9-11 changed everything. Uh, and and I, I think in the course of this conversation, this will come up repeatedly. 9-11 um, uh, was the intolerable attack on the United States. And the, in the aftermath of that, the decision of the Bush administration was that something like that, or indeed something worse than that, 
let's name it right now, a terrorist attack with weapons of mass destruction, by which they were most particularly thinking about nuclear weapons, uh, that, that that could not happen again. Um, so what that meant is that a lot of standard ways of operating, uh, for example, how you think about evidence, that these things were really going to be pushed aside uh, because at all costs, uh, a nuclear 9-11 could not happen again. So, yeah. so, so I mean, that, that, that's, again, key to it in terms of everything changing. Um, you also asked, and you said that, uh, you know, that the Bush administration had a belligerent policy towards Iraq as, as soon as it came into office, and that, that's absolutely the case. Uh, Ron Susskind wrote the book, uh, The Price of Loyalty, talking about Paul O'Neill, Treasury Secretary. And it's really from that book that it, that it first uh, came out um, that, from the very start of the Bush administration, first cabinet meeting, Iraq was on the agenda. Uh, there was talk there about uh, new sanctions, and then Rumsfeld's response was, uh, we don't need sanctions, we need to think about attacking Iraq. Oh uh, and so, so again, that was there, and of course we need to go back and we have to recognize that as of December 1998, Regime change in Iraq was U.S. government policy. Congress had voted for that. We also need to bear in mind before that the first Gulf War, uh, George H.W. Bush's uh, administration move into Iraq. Um, so, so we have a very long history here of attitudes towards Iraq. And let me also just throw in here, there's, there's history before that about U.S.-Iraqi relations. Certainly we can go back to the 1980s, and, and I'm sure we'll get there as well. Uh, but, but while the Bush administration really comes in with these belligerent attitudes, that's not what they are going to act on. Um, rather, really, defense policy, you know, in DOD with, with Rumsfeld at the top is really going to be focused those first months on missile defense and, and the missile threat, uh, which was absolutely a concern of, of Rumsfeld going back again some years. Um, and, and that, that is going to shape things. Then, when 9-11 occurs. Uh, I, I think, the, to, to, to put it very mildly, the light bulb went on, the, the explosion took place, uh, and there was the clear understanding that uh, Saddam Hussein um, would have to be taken care of uh, so that, again, as I mentioned before, another 9-11, worse than this first one, could not come about. Uh, so, so again, the, 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 the belligerence was there, but it was not acted on. Uh, as in, in terms of the, uh, the attempted assassination of George H.W. Bush, um, I, I don't think that that was a motivating factor for George W. Bush to attack Iraq. Uh, did it come into his mind as things were being considered and, and played out? Uh, sure, very possibly so. Uh, but perhaps also very possibly what he saw himself doing was doing what the general, again, the conventional wisdom had now come around to being, that Saddam Hussein should have been removed from uh, the leadership position in Iraq with the first Gulf War. George Bush, the father, had not done it. George Bush, the son, was now going to take care of this. So, again, I don't want to deny that there were perhaps those sorts of connections uh, in his thinking, but that's not what the attack on Iraq was about. Uh, it, was, it was, again, perhaps a secondary sort of thought. 
Well, clearly, after the 9-11 attacks, the pressure was on for some sort of retaliation. You know, we don't, as you say, certainly we didn't want to have another, even worse, 9-11. And that, you know, that, that's a legitimate concern, to put it mildly. Absolutely. Now, that the hijackers, of course, were mainly Saudis. The U.S. attacked Afghanistan right away for its Taliban government, which was harboring al-Qaeda. After that, the target was Iraq, as we all know. To build a case for doing that, as you say, Vice President Cheney and Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld lowered evidentiary standards to make up a story, a nexus, to justify bombing Iraq with the 1% doctrine. What was the nexus, as you say, used as... How, how was it used as a conceptual and emotional link between 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq? What was that narrative? How did they put that together when, when clearly Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with it? Sure, sure. Um, so so let, me, let me, again, pick up the various points that you made. Uh, you, you mentioned this idea of lowering evidentiary standards. Uh, again, uh, Bob Woodward, in his book, Plan of Attack, says, you know, right after 9-11, this is one of the things that Cheney is very clear about. Uh, we're simply going to have to lower evidentiary standards. Uh, waiting to get uh, proof positive is, is not going to be possible, and we're going to have to um, act before that. So I want, to, I want to get that out there right now, that this idea of lowering evidentiary standards is there from the start, and then what we're going to see from 9-11 up to the attack on Iraq in, in March of 2003 is that, indeed, that lowering of evidentiary standards excuse me, is going to be put in place. Now, the nexus. What was the nexus? Well, the nexus, uh, as, as I put it in the book, really uh, exploded into the Bush administration's imagination at the same time that the planes hit the towers uh, and hit the Pentagon. Uh, all of a sudden, there was this, this flashing awareness that something like this could happen. Uh, and again, the point was that at, at all costs, something like this must be uh, must be uh, prevented. So, what was the nexus? The the nexus was the idea that Saddam Hussein. And again, let's use some of this rhetoric here. Saddam Hussein's regime uh, could uh, could not be trusted. Uh, we 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 knew that the threat was real, uh, and and now we had this other terrorist enemy, Al Qaeda that with 9-11 attacks had proven its intention uh, to attack the United States. With the 9-11 attacks had proven its ability to attack the United States. And now we have this guy, Saddam Hussein, who we know uh, wants to attack the U.S. He, he is uh, our, our major adversary in the Middle East. Um, and what, again, it immediately occurred to people uh, in the administration was that Saddam Hussein could link up with these terrorists and they could then attack the U.S. with his weapons. Now, there's another piece to it. Um, beginning in October of 2001, after uh, the U.S. began the attack on Afghanistan, um, Journalists are going to start finding um, documentation in various al-Qaeda safe houses um, that display that al-Qaeda was, uh, was interested in nuclear weapons. Um, late November, uh, of course the administration is aware of all of this sort of information, 
late November, uh, Cheney is given a briefing by George Tenet, the, the director of the CIA, um, and George uh, Tenet's briefing says that al-Qaeda members had had a meeting with Pakistani nuclear officials. And here then was proof that al-Qaeda was interested in WMD and again, most particularly in nuclear weapons. So with the notion of the nexus having already come about with the 9-11 attacks themselves, now with the idea that al-Qaeda was interested in nuclear weapons, this was then the link. We knew that, again, the administration's standpoint, they knew that Saddam Hussein was working on WMD. They knew that he was working on nuclear weapons in particular. We have al-Qaeda displaying an interest mm -hmm. in that, and in addition to their proven ability. And this is really what the nexus was. Now, again, there's one more piece to put into that, which you also mentioned, and this is Cheney's 1% doctrine. When Cheney is given that briefing by George Tenet, he says, and this is again another book uh, by Ron Suskind uh, called The One Percent Doctrine, Cheney says, if there is a one percent chance that al-Qaeda is getting assistance to develop nuclear weapons or to get access to nuclear weapons, we have to treat it as a certainty in terms of our response. So, in other words, hmm. with a 1% possibility that this is going on, the response is that we have to treat it as a certainty. So what we have then is we have this nexus, which has been generated now as the threat. This is the new threat that the administration recognizes and cannot abide. 9-11 was intolerable. A nuclear 9-11 cannot even be considered. Uh, and, and, and so this is uh, the administration approach. Um, one percent chance that they're doing this, we have to treat it as a certainty. And this is another thing that we see here. If evidentiary standards are lowered to this idea of one percent, then what they're looking for in terms of evidence is not much. Mm -hmm. Recognizing, again, this threat that this could happen, Cheney says we have to teach, treat it as a certainty in terms of our response. What it's about is our response. It's not about proof. It's not about learning this. It's about we must react to this. So, so again, we have this belligerence, which is now going to be uh, stoked, of, of course, by 9-11, of course, now by this uh, al-Qaeda interest in nukes. And now we're getting this, this new risk calculus, uh, which quite literally is going to become the risk calculus of the administration. We can quibble, was it 1%, was it 2%, was it 10%? Uh, as Wolfowitz said after, a week after 9-11, uh, he said if there's even a 10% chance that uh, Saddam Hussein was involved, then we have to think about going after him. So now, with this discovery that al-Qaeda is interested in nukes, we might say that that 10% uh, has become radicalized with Cheney's 1%. So uh, this is this is what they're doing. There's there's talk again, and, and you'll notice it from from Bush's rhetoric. He says we can't wait for the smoking gun, right? The smoking gun, as again as he's going to say it, is the nuclear cloud. And if that is here, we know we waited too long. So 
proof positive is not what we're looking for. And then again, to degrade the sorts of evidence that they're looking for, uh, DOD in particular, and again, I'm talking about Rumsfeld, I'm talking about Wolfowitz, and I'm talking about Fife, um, they are saying, you know, Intelligence is not about what they call, quote-unquote, juridical evidence. It's not about what they call, quote-unquote, perfect evidence. What we have to do uh, is we have to act. Uh, and, and this is the sense that is really going to be motivating the administration. And I, I wonder why, if, as you say, you explain something that I didn't know about at the time. They'd, the the powers that were didn't explain that, yes, the al-Qaeda was interested in weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons, and it was suspected that Saddam Hussein had nuclear weapons. Therefore, you know, we need to uh, take the possibility that al-Qaeda would get these weapons out of their hands. That wasn't explained then. I don't know why they didn't do that. You're well, you know, I mean, there. I, I think that there. Some of this information was out there, um, but but again, what the what the administration is is really feeling is that what they are presenting is going to be convincing to the public. Right. Um, there, there's also another way of looking at it. If let's say they're they're analysis of the nexus is is correct which it was not but let's say for the moment it is okay th then one might think that really what they should do is focus on going after al-qaeda again al-qaeda had attacked the u.s yes. um al-qaeda had proven its ability to do it yes. that's what they have to pre prevent but rather than that focus what they immediately shift the focus to is we have to get rid of Saddam Hussein because we know he's developing nuclear weapons. Mm. So, so again, it's, it, there, there's a shift that's going on here. The, the danger that they've apparently uncovered with this interest in nuclear weapons, it would appear to me, is a danger most directly coming from al-Qaeda. But they're taking right. that back earlier, and they're saying, okay, what we're going to use this for is a justification for going against Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Again, you have the policy of regime change. Uh, you know, things hmm. kind of fit together there. Interesting. Lots of fun. At least uh, the weapons manufacturers made out very well indeed. Too bad so and many people. Absolutely. Too bad so absolutely. many people died. For you, If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Larry Hartenian, who's got a new book out, uh, George W. Bush Administration Propaganda for an Invasion of Iraq, and the subtitle is Absence of Evidence. And there's an interesting quote you have from Rumsfeld saying, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. <laughs> <laughs> the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Whoa, that's interesting. I'm glad my parents didn't have that kind of logic. <laughs> my goodness. And just tactically, by requiring dissolution of the Iraqi army, at least 250,000 Iraqi men, armed, angry, and with military training, were suddenly humiliated and out of work. This is often seen as probably the most single catastrophic decision of the American venture into Iraq. Did the administration thus enable the creation of the Iraqi insurgency? 
Well, I, I think as you've laid it out and, and, and asked here, the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, by dissolving uh, the military, uh, and as you say, uh, these, these men um, also with their weapons and with uh, arms storage not secured, um, not only do we have these uh, former members of the military uh, who do not have anything to do, um, but they also have access to their weapons, yeah. and they are also the victims of a um, uh, of an occupation from a foreign army. So I don't think there's any question about that. Um, again, I don't want to say that that is the thing that absolutely is the final nail in the coffin, but, but this is, again, part of the, the, the uh, limited planning for occupation, for, for what was going to happen ap after attack, and the short-sightedness. Uh, again, I, I think that the assumption from the Bush administration is that this attack is going to succeed. Uh, there were there were grandiose notions about uh, remaking the world. This was, of course, you know the the. Um, uh, unipolar moment. Uh, the Soviet Union had been uh, defeated in the Cold War. This is the U.S. remaking the world, uh, and and this is what the intention is going to be. So uh, the assumption was that Iraq would fall into line. Of course, uh, the military was going to be uh, greeted um, with with flowers, uh, <laughs> and and uh, that that that's the way it's going to go. And then, should that have happened. Uh, for which, of course, I don't think there's any possibility, but should that have happened, then I think we would have been talking about the next nexus. Uh, again, the president says in his Axis of Evil speech, you know, he identifies uh, we have Iraq, we have Iran, we have North Korea. Um, we can also throw in Syria and other places that the U.S. was considering. Um, so, uh, again, uh, I don't think that there's any question that the U.S. Um, dissolving the Iraqi army was something that is going to contribute to what is going to happen. Uh, uh, the emergence of ISIS, etc. Yeah. But, but again, there, there, there's precious little attention paid to really what's going to happen in the aftermath of the successful invasion. <laughs> so, little attention paid to the actual evidence. Okay, what could go wrong? <laughs> That's right. That's and, exactly and right. Vice President Cheney, many people think, had more power than his boss, the, the president. Cheney needed a link between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. And it seems, and I know that was in that movie, Vice, I don't know if it's accurate, that they decided that Abu Masab al-Zarqawi would be that link that they needed. Did, is it, I wonder, did Cheney take a relatively obscure Al-Qaeda person, and by naming him and giving him international publicity, did it turn him into a hero, thus recruiting many Iraqis, those guys who had all the weapons and were kind of pissed, uh, thus creating Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which had not existed before, later becoming ISIS, or is this story fiction? Well, you know, I, I, I do think that, that Zarqawi was a, a key player. Uh, I mean, again, the administration, as, as, as with so many other types of evidence, you know, was very loose with the evidence. Um, while our, uh, Zarqawi was regarded by uh, the intelligence community as an associate of al-Qaeda and a collaborator, um, Bush, when he talked about him, he talked about him as a high-level member of al-Qaeda. So, so we have these, these re 
positionings going on. Um, on the other hand, was Cheney, by identifying Zarqawi, uh, was Cheney responsible for the prominence that he's going to come to play? I, I don't know that that's the case. I think that Zarqawi uh, was a significant player. Uh, I think the relations that he is going to establish ultimately with al-Qaeda um, will allow him to pursue what he wants to do and what al-Qaeda wants to do. So so I don't, I don't want to say that... Uh, we can credit uh, uh, Cheney mm. with that. Um, I, I also want to say, and I, I think you know, your your point is right that in some ways um, Cheney was more powerful than Bush in setting Iraq policy. But I don't want there to to be any question um, that he was doing this uh, separate from Bush, that he was yeah. doing this opposed to Bush. The the administration was clear uh, on this policy about going for Saddam Hussein. Uh, and and again, if if Cheney was the the leading actor in some uh, for some uh, affairs, uh, if Rumsfeld or mm. Wolfowitz or Fife were the leading actors for others, uh, that was just the way it goes. Or if uh, or if Colin Powell was going to be called forth to to give the speech to the UN, right? Everybody had to play their part. Yeah. Uh, and again, the, the parts may indeed have been quite unique, you know, resting on their special skills and abilities and relationships. Uh, but, but, but Cheney here uh, knew uh, it, it, very much what he was doing in broad terms. Again, I, I cannot really speak more than what I've said to the Al-Zarqawi issue. Uh-huh. Well, that's, it's good to clear it up. And that, you know, we like to know reality some of us actually care about evidence and the truth. <laughs> imagine that you write yep. the cheney's speech to the vfw on august 26 2002 was a powerful opening salvo in a vigorous propaganda campaign end of quote which you say led to a propaganda extravaganza in the months following please say more sure sure so, so again, I, I, I want to say that the case against Iraq, and that's that's really the case that I'm pretty singularly focused on in, in the book. The case against Iraq begins to take shape, as I just suggested a moment ago, with 9/11. Uh, then, with this this nuclear interest of Al Qaeda, then it, it, it's just growing and growing and growing. Um, what we're going to see then is that in the fall of of 2001, after the attack on Afghanistan, which takes place on um, October 7th, and, and goes relatively relatively quickly and relatively well, um, then there's going to be kind of this reorientation um, towards looking at Iraq. Um, Cheney then is, is well, well let's, let's leave Cheney out of the picture. I want to say that the first big push in the propaganda campaign is really going to come with the president's axis of evil speech, which was his State of the Union speech in 2002. Um, because it's here that he talks, he introduces this term with all of its propagandistic overtones of the axis of evil, uh, evil, evil empire axis, taking us back to the World War II axis, all of these uh, mixed metaphors, we might call them. Um, but uh, so, so when when Bush introduces this concept of the axis of evil, what that really is a stand-in for is for the nexus. Um, nexus, I want to say, along with WMD, were the two major themes that the administration is going to use um, to, to carry itself to war, but it's really the nexus that is most important. And again, the nexus, as I, as I described it a moment ago, is abstractly speaking, it's going to be uh, the relationship between a state 
that either has or is developing WMD, a terrorist group that has the capacity to, to, uh, to, to hit the United States and the collusion between them. Now, FITE's office in October of 2001, is going to start looking broadly into that issue, the relation between um, terrorist states and terrorist groups. Uh-huh. And this is going to be very consistent with neoconservative thinking that terrorist groups can't do what they do without a connection to a terrorist state. So, so this is indeed consistent with their thinking. However, very, very quickly, as, as I've already indicated, the singular nexus, or maybe I should say the initial nexus that the administration is concerned with is Saddam Hussein pursuing WMD, Al-Qaeda, proven ability to attack the U.S. He's going to pass his weapons on to them, and then they will use them to attack us. So, so this is going to be laid out in the uh, uh, State of the Union speech in um, mm-hmm. January of, of 2002. Over, that, over the next months, uh, leading us up to uh, Cheney's speech at the VW that you, VFW that you've asked about, um, over the next months, what's going to happen is the, the administration is going to build the threat case. They're going to talk more and more about, you know, Saddam Hussein is, is, has active WMD programs. And then after he has active WD, WMD programs, they're going to start talking about him um, expanding them, that, that, that he's working on them aggressively, etc. So that over the course of those months, let's say from January 2003 until August of 2003, the, the, the case, the propaganda case is taking shape and it's accelerating. Then August 26, 2002, Cheney gives his speech to the VFW, and I want to say this is without a doubt the opening salvo in the vigorous phase of this propaganda. Mm-hmm. The administration is now making a push and this is going to be, we need to get, excuse me, we need to get this authorization for the use of military force. This authorization for the use of military force is going to be something that we, the Republicans, use in the midterm elections that are coming uh-huh. up. And then if we win both of those, then this is capital that we can take to the U.N. and see and say, see, the U.S. is united, and then the U.N. needs to fall in line. So this was all laid out very, very intentionally. And, and again, you know, you, of course, there's, there's the recollection of Andrew Card, Chief of Staff Andrew Card's statement that you don't start a propaganda campaign in August, you know, that it was really not going to be until September that it happened. Well, that's just not true. <laughs> Cheney did it in August. Uh, now, yeah. now, that I think it's possible that Cheney and Bush decided, okay, we need to do this now. Uh, But again, I think there is zero question that Cheney was acting ahead of what Bush wanted. Uh, Bush acknowledged that he saw the speech in advance. Uh, Again, knowing George W. Bush as we do, he didn't read through every detail and and tick off every every word that was used, but he knew what what it was about and he was going to use it. Uh, so, So this is where it begins. And then after Cheney does this speech on August 26th, then we have the Labor Day weekend. And so, you know, the timing here is kind of interesting. You know, so I guess we all go home and, uh, again, us, us congressmen and members of the Senate and whatnot, and, and we have our celebrations, uh, and, and we also talk to our constituents about, well, what really has to be done. So I think this was, again, part of the buildup. 
after the Labor Day weekend, beginning on September 4th, there's going to be constant briefings for members of Congress, going to be invited to the White House, uh, going to be in session with the intelligence committees, uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld uh, and Tenet are all going to go there. So all of that is there. And then we have on September 8th, that big occasion that perhaps we all do remember when uh, we have that article in the New York Times by Gordon and Miller, and, and they're talking about the aluminum tubes. Now, the U.S. had intelligence on the aluminum tubes going back to April 2001, but here we are on September 8, 2002, that this intelligence is now made public for the first time. And this is, this is again, just going to be the next step in it, and it's going to go on and on from there. Oh, lovely. That's amazing how they... They get a story and then they fit fit the pieces into it once this it's together. And they were not yep. as as dumb as the president looked. <laughs> they were they knew what they were doing, especially politically. In case you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is keeping democracy alive. We're looking at uh, reaction after 9/11, the uh, attack on Iraq. Our guest is Larry Hartenian, who's got a new book, Professor. Uh, of history and and politics. Uh, his new book is George W. Bush Administration Propaganda for an Invasion of Iraq, subtitled Absence of Evidence. And part of the propaganda justifying our invasion of Iraq was the story of uranium from Niger. The, then there was the example, of course, of the aluminum tubes, which you mentioned. You observed that, quote, intelligence that had been provided by fabricators and funneled through a manipulative process of anchored in conviction. T did the Bush administration know the stories were false with regard to the aluminum tubes and the uh, uranium from Niger? All right. Uh, obviously a key question, and, and I'd, I'd like to give it a somewhat straightforward but complex answer if I can. Sure. Um, I, I, I tried to indicate before that, that Cheney's approach is, is really to embrace this 1% doctrine. Um, and, and that is that, that we're looking for 1% of, of, of evidence that this is going on. And if we have that, that's enough. Okay. I, I'm also saying that with, um, I, I, well, maybe I haven't said this point yet, but truly with the 9-11 attacks, I want to say that very day, the administration is determined or, or the administration determines to attack, attack Iraq. Now, of course, this is, this is September 11, 2001. They don't attack until March of 2003. There's a lot of times when they could have gone forward that decision, gone backward with that decision. But I am saying that on that day, September 11, the decision really was made to attack Iraq. I mean, on the 15th of September, uh, meeting again with his cabinet, uh, Bush is going to say, you know, I think Iraq was involved but I'm not going to attack them now because I don't have the evidence, right? So, so here we have kind of this notion of an absence of evidence, um, even though at the time he says, I believe they were involved. Then what we can also say is that at that very same time, Bush is going to uh, talk about, and, and there is no mystery what he meant, about a phase two of the war on terror. And that phase two of the war on terror was going to be targeted on Saddam Hussein and Iraq. So, so again, I'm saying that these decisions were in place. I'm not saying that they were carved in stone and could not have been reversed. That's, that's certainly right. not the case. But, but these decisions were there. 
There's something else that we also don't know, and that is kind of the relationship between Bush and George Tenet, the director of Central, Central Intelligence. Certainly, Tenet is going to do his share in helping the administration. I don't, I don't think there can be any question uh, about that. But what is also very important is that George Tenet is going to be the person who prepares the uh, president's daily brief, the president's daily intelligence briefing. Um, Silverman-Robb Commission report that was written up afterwards uh, is very clear. They imply that the PDBs, the President's Daily Briefs, were probably the biggest uh, failure of the administration and intelligence. Mm -hmm. They talk about um, alarmist headings. They talk about repeated um, citations of, of information. Um, and that these, this PDB, I think, is going to be very much the type of document which is giving Bush the information, the intelligence that he can use daily in making his statements, which I'm saying are propaganda statements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, if something like Cheney's 1% doctrine has been embraced, if this notion of attacking Iraq is already in place with 9-11 and the week thereafter that's following, then this specific intelligence that is coming in to the White House is being tailored mm -hmm. to make that case. Mm -hmm. So did the Bush administration know that something in particular was not true? Well, it kind of all depends what we're talking about. Because if we're talking about, for example, the aluminum tubes, uh -huh. there is going to be a one-page summary of, of the National Intelligence Estimate in which it's going to be uh, made very clear that there is not full agreement of all the intelligence agencies about the aluminum tubes. George W. Bush is going to be informed of that very clearly. George W. Bush is going to be informed very clearly in another NIE in January 2003 that all intelligence agencies did assess that Saddam Hussein would not attack the United States if we didn't attack him. So what we're seeing here is, is that the intelligence is coming in. It is being tailored to make the case for the administration. So in this regard, I'm suggesting quite clearly that Tenet is crossing a line from intelligence mm -hmm. into serving the administration's propaganda. This is the way it is going to work. So, so for example, when, when they start getting uh, intelligence information from al-Qaeda who are captured, uh, and again, this is just another indication about how they're going to about, go about gathering evidence. In their quest to gather evidence, they are going to engage in things like extraordinary rendition. Uh -huh. In their quest for intelligence, they are going to engage in things like torture. And they are going to trust the information that comes out of these approaches wow. as valid information used to make their case. Mm. So that... Um, uh, so, so again, um, when they hear um, from Al Libby, who was uh, subjected to this, um, that Iraq had uh, provided training in chemical and biological warfare uh, to Al Qaeda, um, they are going to believe that right. now. In the aftermath, we know this did not happen. We know that 
according to his own testimony, he gave that testimony because he was being tortured and he wanted to get out from under that torture. He would tell them whatever he thought they wanted to hear so that uh, he would stop being tortured. The Bush administration, when they get this information, or I guess this is really more the intelligence uh, agencies, they know that, uh, that, that this is happening under torture. But this does not in any way draw into question the validity of this uh, as evidence. Uh, so, so again, uh, did the Bush administration know that these things were false or, or you know, questions of that sort? Uh, the, the issue is that they were seeking to make a case. That case would be made uh, in order to uh, pursue the uh, in, uh, invasion of Iraq, uh, and there is no question here about going back and looking at the evidence. He knew that all the intelligence agencies did not agree about the aluminum tubes. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned uh, the uranium from Niger. Um, this too, this was this this was a, a case that never had any legitimacy, and certainly the intelligence agencies knew about it, but. What we had was we had Tennant, again, preparing the PWP, providing this information to Bush so that he could use it to make his case. So I want to say that all of these members of the administration are involved in making the case. Um, and if we really want to start talking about fabrications, um, then we really need to start looking into the office of Douglas Fife, um, who are going to be uh, getting evidence from INC-affiliated, Iraqi National Congress-affiliated defectors. Um, they are going to be requesting that instead of getting information on WMD, they go and get information on Iraqi relations with al-Qaeda, and they're going to come back with that quote-unquote intelligence providing it to the administration. So the administration here is gathering evidence of the most dubious quality uh, obtained in the most um, uh, inappropriate ways in order to make its case. They're not looking to say, oh, this is false. They're looking to say, this is the case. Oh, my goodness. And again, who's who's Doug Fife? I remember the name, but I can't remember what his position Sure. So, so Doug Fife is really number three in the Department of Defense. So you have Rumsfeld, of course, at the top, and Wolfowitz was his deputy, and then he is going to be the um, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Ah. Um, it's going to be his office, which immediately sets up that policy counterterrorism evaluation group that is looking for those connections between terrorist states and uh, terrorist groups. they got to find um, them, yeah. That, I, I, I want to ask right. about so, Intelligence Officer Paul Pillar, who was sure. responsible for the CIA white paper, later referred to it as policy advocacy, not intelligence analysis. The CIA is, is somewhat independent. They don't like to be used politically, I think. Has the CIA since then buffered its protection against politicization since that embarrassment? Um. Uh, all right, lots, <laughs> lots, lots of issues there as well. Uh, so, so Paul Pillar was the national intelligence officer. Uh, he played a role in that October 2002 NIE national intelligence estimate, and then a couple of days later, the the U.S. white paper came out. And what the white paper did was essentially it took the um, conclusions from the NIE of three days prior. And it put them at the front of the white paper, and then in the evidence that was provided, 
it essentially removed all caveats. So intelligence statements that we have reports that, or, you know, it, it has been reported, or, uh-huh. or any of those caveats yeah. um, were simply removed. And from then limited statements, what we are going to get are statements of certainty. Um, and this is another way that the Bush administration uh, really did uh, manipulate this evidence. So, so again, that was going on. Now, now back to back to the CIA and Cheney for a second. I mean, I think the thing that we also need to understand is that the CIA, which Cheney was the head of, uh, is a part of the executive branch. It, mm-hmm. it is under mm-hmm. the authority of the president, um, the director of the CIA, and. Tenet, uh, is a carryover uh, from from the Clinton administration uh, serves at the president's pleasure. Um, so so the, the the vaunted independence of the CIA really needs to be uh-huh. uh, it, it, it need it needs to be taken uh, into consideration that it, mm-hmm. it's it's not maybe all that we've seen. We've, this is obviously not the first time that we've seen CIA uh, assist a president. Uh, to to make a case for which there was really not good evidence. Um, so has anything been done to to address that? Uh, again, uh, I, I'd like to to kind of beg off on that, but sure. certainly the reorganization of the intelligence community that is going to take place in the aftermath of nine eleven is going to create a new post, the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, who is not at the same time the director of the CIA. So uh, there, there is, you know, it, I do believe that that's an attempt to uh, to have the director have some independence and not have him be, hold, be beholden to uh, the Central Intelligence Agency itself. Well, as someone said, the price of, uh, of liberty is eternal vigilance. We, the people, have to be careful and watch out for this stuff and try to be aware. They don't want us to be aware, but we're, we're doing it. What about the yep. unitary executive theory? which was espoused by Cheney at the time. Sure. What about lasting effects of, of that? Well, I, I, I would like to su- suggest that, that, that there are indeed some lasting effects of that. I mean, certainly we know that from Cheney's standpoint, uh, the executive is, 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 could essentially not be limited. I mean, right. again, it's, it's, its authority was, was more or less boundless. Um, and and what I'd like to suggest is that if if Cheney is not going to uh, allow Congress uh, to interfere with the president's executive action, then certainly Cheney is not going to allow little things like evidentiary standards get in the way of making the case to invade Iraq, right? So again, this is, I, I think that helps us think about it that way. Um, in, in terms of the notion of the unitary executive, um, I, I, I don't know quite what sense we make of that uh, with our last president, President Trump. Um, it, it, it seems that he was able to, in many ways, uh, pretty much hamstring government, um, and and I don't think that it was based on Cheney's notions of the unitary executive, but maybe in some ways uh, it was a a, a strange uh, example of the unitary executive in action. <laughs> yeah, he he was uh, unique, not just for his orange color, but very, very <laughs> unique. Wait, what you recognize as the quote persistent hyperbole and lying fear-mongering, fabrication, etc., of the time, 
Did that set new standards? Are we still under those standards? Um, you know, we can, uh, again, I, I think a, a bit of a complicated answer. Um, you know, I just, I just pointed out a moment ago, uh, torture used as a way to get evidence. And, and we know that when Obama came in, he was going to say that, you know, we're, we're not going to torture. Um, so I would like to think that, that some changes have been made. Um, on the other hand, um, we know that, again, looking at the, the, the last president, President Trump, um, that he was able to, um, I don't know, create, or maybe the word is generate, um, his own reality. <laughs> um, and, and now, again, perhaps what the difference is, is not the hyperbole, it's not the exaggeration, but the Bush administration had the appearance of making its case based on intelligence. And they repeatedly uh -huh. said that that's what they were doing, right? Uh -huh. Again, Colin Powell, everything I say here is based on intelligence, etc. And And that, I think, gave them great credibility. Now, of course, for many of us who were opposed to the war, we, we just didn't see it, right? We, um, the evidence that they were leaking uh, just didn't add up to us. Um, but But they nevertheless had this presentation that this was based on intelligence. With Trump, we didn't see that, right? Uh, again, Trump is going to say, well, I believe Putin. I don't believe my intelligence right. agencies exactly. on, on this kind of stuff. Um, so, so the idea that you can create your own reality, I think, is there with Bush. It's there with subsequent presidents. And it was certainly there with prior presidents, right? No, for sure. Um, we, we can, you know, just, just to point to the most obvious, the Gulf of Tonkin. Um, yes. So, so. I, I don't know that we've really come very far mm. from that. Mm. Uh, again, you know, we, the president has great authority. We cannot, in real time, we cannot debunk the president's claims. Right. And, and even now, you know, the reason why I gave up my original schema for the book was because they couldn't get access to all that intelligence. And here we are 20 years later. Wow. So, so the, the president has that great power, the the power of, of the bully pulpit, whatever, sure. uh, and, and the authority. And, and again, this was another one of their major propaganda techniques, and that was to, uh, to, to base uh, the case on the authority of the president. Well, this is the president. He would not be lying to you. Yeah. you know, I mean, this, this is it. Yeah, some of us remember Nixon. Nah, he wouldn't lie. Yeah, exactly. But exactly. They, as you say... The administration did not have and didn't need any new evidence to support regime change in Iraq. What was the real reason we did it? Well, I, I, I think I, I touched on this before. Um, I, I think the real reason we did it really did have to do with, you know, this, this notion of a unipolar moment. Uh, um, Soviet Union uh -huh. has been defeated. We are the sole superpower. Um, and, and we know um, that uh, Iraq has been a threat. Again, you know, we have the, the, the first Gulf War. It's time that we start remaking the world in our image. Um, and and this, was, this was, we might say, the other side of the propaganda. I mean, as any good propagandist knows, for, for all the propaganda that you are going to make to attack an enemy, you really need the counterweight to that. And that counterweight here was going to be um, the, the virtue of the United States. Virtue, so that, right. that 
we were, first of all, we were innocent and we were innocently attacked. And now what we are going to do is we are going to use this as an opportunity. And they certainly uh, saw attacking Saddam Hussein as an opportunity. But the point I'm trying to make here is that this is going to be an opportunity to remake the world in our image. We're going to bring democracy to Iraq. And after Iraq, then again, is it going to be Iran? Is it going to be Syria? Is it going to be North Korea? And we're going to make the Middle East, and we're going to make it democratic. So there was all of this grandiose talk, uh, which which was there, which they used to describe their intentions. Uh, and I would suggest that that was part that was that was necessary uh, as yeah. as the counterpose to all of the negatives that you're saying about Saddam Hussein. In many ways, the the the, the comparison was personalized. Saddam Hussein is an evil tyrant. George W. Bush is a deliberative statesman who wants to bring peace to the Iraqi people. You know, the contrast couldn't be greater, and those are our leaders, so those characteristics of the leaders, of course, reflect on the states, on the governments. Mm. Uh, I have to ask just at the end here, many people would have us just, oh, let it be, leave it behind us. They don't want us to look at history, which, of course, still shapes up. What do you say to that, to the objection to revisiting this issue? Why sh- what, what do you say to that? Well, uh, of course, you understand I'm a historian. <laughs> I spent my life teaching history. Um, and and there, there is, from my perspective, and I think from, from all historians' perspective, um, there's, there's this, the awareness that, that history, um, through history, is how we understand people, is how we understand societies, is how we understand governments. Mm. Um, it, in, in, in history, looking at our history also provides some moral instruction for us. Um, have we lived up to our pronouncements and things of this sort? Yeah. Um, then, then the question that you asked a moment ago, have these developments had long-term effects on our political culture? And, and for that, I think there is simply no question, no question. that it has. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, we might just say that the evidence of that is that, that uh, Donald Trump was able to be elected, quite apart from anything that he did in office. I mean, uh, clearly, him coming into office, there, there, there was nothing here about uh, evidence or, 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 or expertise or, or experience or whatever. Um, but, but we, as you know, we need to study this history so that we can have a polity that serves our democracy. Because without that, what we're going to see is a continuing drift toward authoritarianism. Ah, lovely. (laughs) And with that, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Our our guest today is uh, Larry Artanian. His new book is George W. Bush Administration, Propaganda for an Invasion of Iraq, subtitled Absence of Evidence. Thank you so much. And uh, maybe we can bring democracy to America. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a great idea. Thanks very much, Bert. I really appreciate it.